0: All right, everybody say, hey, Jason. Hey, Jason. <laughs> it's Jason. Uh, Jason Shin is the candidate for the youth pastor role here at Faith. He has spent a lot of time here this weekend uh, with staff, with the executive committee, with members of the board, with students and parents. And he uh, preached first service and agreed to stay on and to preach, again, second service, which I was really glad for. Oh. Um, So, we've got tradition on Candidating Weekend. Jason, what is your worst sin and why haven't you quit yet? Well... All right. So, uh, we are glad to have you here. Um, They're all warmed up, they're yours. All right. First of all, can we make sure to give a shout out to the kid readers that we had today? That was awesome. if you see those guys, make sure to tell them how great they were and how. Uh, it is, it, as someone who's standing up here, it is terrifying to be up here. So uh, <laughs> they were awesome and they were brave. So my name is Jason. Please allow me to introduce myself. Um, I've been a youth pastor, a director uh, for professionally for over 15 years. I've, ser- I've served in a variety of churches, big and small, suburban and rural, conservative and not so conservative. I'm married to Jessica. Um, Yes, we've been married for 17 years. We have two dogs, Short Round and Sala. If you know those references, shout out to you. They are menaces. Um, They are menaces of Gratiot Avenue. So uh, I'm from Mount Clemens, so that's where I'm living right now. I'm a pastor's kid. Uh, Part of my testimony is that I promised myself and I promised God that I would never work for a church. So look how that arrogant promise has gotten me so far. Uh, Like Jonah, God got a hold of me and uh, refused to let go. And when I took the call seriously, I've been volunteering and professionally working for in and for churches ever since. So honestly, it was student ministry that really convinced me to follow Christ for real. I was graduating high school, and my dad had just hired a new youth pastor. And that youth pastor pulled me aside to convince me to volunteer for him. I knew the kids, I knew the church. He needed my help. Initially, I resisted really, really hard. But this youth pastor had a way about him that always seemed to convince me to go with his harebrained idea. And this harebrained idea of serving in student ministry was just took the cake. But I volunteered. And then he was asking me not just to volunteer, but to lead. First it was leading games. Then it was a devotional here and there. Then it was the whole lesson. And I was faced with this question that I think we all have to face at some point in our faith journey. Do I believe what I'm saying? For me, uh, am I, do I believe what I'm teaching? Am I living out the words in my everyday life so it was through working with students that Christ confronted me with a question: Do you take me seriously? And so, student ministry was a major part, a huge part of introducing me to the real Christ. And what I want to con- and I want to continue to do that for students today. Uh, let's pray, Heavenly Father. We just thank you for this for this time. God bless this service. God. Uh, Thank you so much that it's Palm Sunday and we are celebrating Easter week. Heavenly Father, just, this, is, this, is our, this is our Super Bowl, God. God, we just want to thank you so much for the sacrifice you made uh, and just giving your son up for us this day. Uh, just bless this time with us in your name. Amen. So I want to ask us the same question that Christ confronted me with. Do we take Christ? and his words seriously. So I want to take a few minutes today and look at a simple command that scripture gives us that is simple yet so hard to live. As we look around our country, as we look around our culture, we're quick to discover we're a people divided. We are a people in need of healing. We are a people in need of hope. I wish I had some perfect formula or a verse that could just solve all these issues with a snap of my finger, but life just does not work like that. So I thought I would guest spot today and just talk about a simple idea that Jesus gave to us and to the apostle Paul and and, and that's repeated in Galatians chapter five. Galatians is this cool little book that uh, is a personal favorite of mine. It's It's a book about the freedom we have in Christ. Paul wrote it to help early Christians learn freedom from man-made religion. It's an amazing book that has inspired me. I would encourage you to take some time to check it out. Imagine you're one of these early Christians that was struggling with what it means to be a Christ follower when it was, seems like religion is just about all these weird traditions and rules, and then Paul comes in and says, stop, it's for freedom that Christ came to set you free. It's for freedom that Christ came to set you free. Imagine the weight that's been lifted off your shoulders. So we're gonna pick up this passage late in the book of Galatians where Paul is really digging into this idea of what it means to live the Christian life. So if you, if you have a Bible, if you wanna tap and open it up, or we're gonna to go to Galatians chapter five and then we'll end up in Luke chapter 10 eventually. But Galatians chapter five and verse 13 says this, for you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters, but don't use this freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. So we have Paul giving some encouragement to this church, which was a weird mix of Jewish believers who grew up with this rich tradition filled with history and ritual and a group of Gentiles or not Jews who had grown up with no history with this religion. All they knew is that they wanted to follow this Jesus guy who lived a perfect life, died for their sins, didn't stay dead, and offered them hope. So Paul hits him with some deep theology in this letter to the church. First, we have the calling to live in freedom. Second, we have the action to love your neighbor. And third, we have the problem. The temptation is to destroy each other. Love your neighbor. That's it. Paul's counting on everyone believing in Christ. That This is an example and a way that we live out our faith in Christ. It's simple. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's easy, right? But, like all those, what seems to be simple statements Jesus made, we aren't very good at it. In fact, love your neighbor. The problem is, we're terrible. I don't know why. We all started off so well with this guy. Honestly, Mr. Rogers would probably be pretty disappointed with where we are in 2022. That's right, I said it. What did you learn in church today? Mr. Rogers is disappointed in me. Mission accomplished. That's it, I'm done. Let's pray. Oh, you're still here. Okay. Let's figure out this neighboring thing from Christ's perspective. The first thing we need to do is try to make sense of why we don't neighbor well. And I think when it comes to meeting neighbors, we often act like these guys. Uh, I'm thinking of going and get one of those uh, electric garage door openers and installing them Ray, Ray, Ray come here, what is it? Say hi. Well, yeah, I guess I could. You know, he, he, this would be the perfect time because you could go up and talk to him. We, we could see what he's like, you know. Go. You could go say hi to him, too, you know. Yeah, but he's your neighbor. Well, no, he's your neighbor as well. No, but I'm over. You're, you share a property line with him. He's yeah, your, like. we're all on the same block, so, I mean, you could go, too, so. No, it's, well, we're all in the same town, too, but you're right next to him. If he's ever gonna borrow anything, he'd come over to your place. Well, he's, he's busy, you know. I no, not busy. Now look, he's going into, go now, because if, I mean, he's going back in. If you were, if you were gonna say hi, you should probably, there he's going into the, you're, you're gonna lose him, because he's, he's gonna go in. Well, there now, you've blown it, haven't you? Yeah? No, I didn't blow it. He went, he went into his house. Chicken? I'm not chicken, because he went into his house. Well, he went into his, you know, you look like a chicken in front of your son and everything. Your son. Come on, It was If it's all suddenly such a Hey, 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 deal, hey, it's a hey, 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 Chicken, let's Why say so hello. edgy? Come on. Come Try on, Come on. They're daring each oh, other to ring God. the doorbell. We shouldn't stare like this. <sighs> when we both go inside and say hello, are you chicken? Go for it, Mr. Peterson. Yes! <laughs> well, <laughs> now everybody's watching us. Good going, man. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, I'll go in with you. Sure, right. Okay, no problem. Let's go. <laughs> in the basement window's here. Ah, ah. They got holes in their porch too. Ah, that was booby trap. Yeah, okay? Oh, yeah, booby trap. I'm not gonna pay for that. We shouldn't pay for that, we should sue them. <sighs> well, uh, let's uh, let's say hello. So here's the question. We're often like these guys. Why don't we neighbor well? I think the reason we fail to reach out consistently is fueled by fear. We have fear of the other, fear of different opinions and ideas, fear of embarrassment, fear of investment of a relationship, fear of leaving our comfort zone. But we can't get away from this little command that Jesus gave us. In fact, in the second, he called it the second most important commandment in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 36, Jesus is being questioned by a religious leader and the religious leader says this, "'Teacher, what is the most important commandment "'in the law of Moses?' "'Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God "'with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. "'This is the first and greatest commandment. "'A second is equally important.' Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Notice there isn't any get out of jail free cards in this little nugget. Love your neighbor as long as they agree with you politically or share your opinions on huge ideas like race or religion. Jesus even calls you to love your neighbor even over annoyingly small things like sports teams, movies, and taste in music. The question is, Who is our neighbor? Is it just the people we share property lines with or happen to live on the same block, same town, same skin color, same taste in music? Where are my Dave Matthews fans at? Thankfully, the Bible answers its own question. And Jesus took some time to define what a neighbor is when a religious leader asked him again and questioned him on it. And this is where we get to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus tells a a very familiar story to most of us that have been in church. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you for the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Jesus essentially defined our neighbor as neighbors are the people we come into contact with. Notice I put contact in quotes. We live in a hyper-connected world. Contact means so much. It means the people we live next to, our literal neighbors, the people who we run into at the grocery store, the barista at Starbucks, the people we work with, and even with the people we interact with online. That's a lot of neighbors. It's almost as if Jesus was saying, if you want to live out your faith and change the world, we need to start one person at a time, which is revolutionary. One of the biggest things that stops us from seriously taking Jesus' command to love our neighbors is our own self-interest and (laughs) self-preservation. A while back, I did a series on justice with the church I was serving with, and I discovered that Martin Luther King spoke about the Good Samaritan passage. And Martin Luther King described taking a trip with his wife to Jerusalem. He traveled this road that Jesus spoke about. He talked about how it was a mountain pass that was very steep, full of switchbacks and curves, basically perfect for bandits and robbers. And Martin Luther King spoke about how the people of the time would have known this road and more importantly, they would have known the reputation of the road. So MLK spoke about how people were wary of helping anyone because it was just as likely that you would go to help someone and they were in fact robbers pretending to be hurt. But Martin Luther King said this, the first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But the good Samaritan reversed the question and said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? If I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? If we don't stop to help our neighbors, who will? I love the phrase for such a time as this. That's straight from the Bible. And I'm pretty sure you just finished a series that talked about that that, that phrase is from, I'll let you do the research on that one. But what if we're placed in this year, in this place, surrounded by these people for such a time as this? So every Christ follower can learn to neighbor well if we choose to live out these four aims. Aim number one is we need to live out Christ's example. Philippians 2 says this, Christ himself was like God in everything, but he did not think that being equal with God was something to be used for his own benefit, He gave up his place with God and made himself nothing. He was born as a man and became like a servant. And when he was living as a man, he humbled himself and was fully obedient to God. Even when that caused his death, a death on the cross. So God raised him to the highest place. God made his name greater than every other name, so that every knee will bow to the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth and everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and bring glory to God the Father. That's a long passage. John chapter one actually sums it up a little bit better and he says this in the message version of the Bible. John chapter one says this, the word who was Jesus Christ became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, I love that. Jesus moved into the neighborhood. This is deep stuff. Jesus was God, yet he gave up his place to come live among us, to struggle, to celebrate, and to simply live out what it means to be human. Today is Palm Sunday, the very day that the Bible records the people celebrating the coming of the king into Jerusalem jesus became flesh jesus moved into the neighborhood he was touched he was seen he was known we have a big church word for this incarnation essentially jesus left his seat next to god to become a meat sack like the rest of us not quite the webster's dictionary definition but we work with what we got This is the ultimate example of neighboring. Jesus had the high ground. Jesus had every right to be separate from the sinners, but he came to humanity. He chose incarnation to live among us. No one was beneath him. He was never too good for someone. Even the people who disagreed with him, distrusted him, and tried to trap him, he made time even for those neighbors. Are we doing the same? Are we stepping into the world of our family and friends, our work, and just the people we come into contact with the general idea of representing Jesus by loving our neighbors each and every day? Aim number two is to live with eyes wide open. Look at, what scripture, look at scripture with me. In fact, Isaiah says this, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphans, fight for the widows. And then in Second Corinthians, it says this, our lives are like a Christ-like fragrance, rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Uh, my wife, Jessica, and I are considered weird. Uh, a lot of us, a lot of it is very much deserved. Uh, but part of it is we decided to take Scripture very seriously a few years, a few years ago. And if you read Isaiah 1 or Micah chapter 6, you get these similar messages. As if God was so serious that he repeated himself for emphasis. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of of widows. Learn to see the hurting. So we started living with our eyes open, which led to an odd conversation at the Mount Clemens Library. Uh, Five homeless guys stopped me before the pandemic and asked me if I was a lawyer. Apparently, I dressed nice, clearly. (laughs) But clearly, they did not notice the pile of DC and Marvel graphic novels that I was holding. That really denotes my scholarly studies. But I started talking to them every, every time I went to the library and then it happened. It started as this itch in my throat. I don't know if you've ever had this where God starts to plant an idea and it starts to itch in your throat but you really don't wanna say it because it's gonna cause, it's just gonna be a bad idea. But this itch in my throat and next thing I know, I was inviting them to Thanksgiving. It was a weird time that year. My family had moved to Atlanta. My wife's family lives near Dayton, Ohio. But we were both uh, we were both off on our retail job for Thanksgiving, but we were both working that Friday, so we couldn't travel. And so our grand plan was to have Chinese food and go see a movie. All that changed when I invited five relative strangers into our house, so they came to watch the Lions lose. They came for the food, they came for a warm place, they came for a shower, and they came for the washer and dryer. My mistake was I read Scripture. I took the Bible's care for the hurting and downtrodden seriously. I lived with my eyes open, and we had a Thanksgiving to remember. Awkward, fun, and really odd. I felt like, I kind of feel like that's the kingdom of heaven is gonna be like that. Awkward, fun, and odd. With a bunch of people who don't necessarily belong, but the host makes it work anyways and the group is better for it. This idea of sharing life with others actually has a name which leads me to aim number three. Live the idea of place sharing. Live the idea of place sharing. I was living in Xenia, Ohio. I know you're all thinking, wow, I'm so jealous. Xenia, Ohio, that sounds like the destination. And you are wrong. It is not. But I was working for a church in Xenia, Ohio, when I came across a book that both changed my idea of what ministry looked like, and also in a way affirmed the way we had been doing ministry. I should probably explain that. Sometimes I feel like ministry is finding your way in a dark room, tripping over things, bumping into things, but you know you're going in the right direction. You know you're closer to the light, but you haven't quite found it yet. That's kind of what ministry is. It's it's a lot of fake it until you make it and and just make it up as you go because God is leading you down a path, and you're just trusting him that there's an end in sight. So I've been doing this ministry with an open home, making room for misfits to stay with us. We've had had multiple people live with us for years, but it wasn't until I found a book by a guy named Andrew Roop that I finally had a name for what I was doing. Before I get to that name, let's check out some passages from scripture. Both are from 1 Peter. 1 Peter 3 says this, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, Love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender hearted, and keep a humble attitude. And 1 Peter 4 says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love calls, covers a multitude of sins. These passages describe the inner qualities that we need to have to care for our neighbors, sympathize with their struggles, be tender hearted, keep a humble attitude, because we're not always right and we don't always know the answers. Most important scripture says love each other because love covers a multitude of sins. The name that this author, Andrew Root, called called the ministry that I had tripped and stumbled into is called place sharing. And believe it or not, he got this name place sharing from a German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer is most famously known for writing a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Probably the second thing he's most famously known for is he was part of one of the plots to kill Hitler, and he lost his life in World War II when they caught him as he tried to assassinate Hitler. But this man named Andrew Root wrote his Princeton dissertation on one of the smaller books Bonhoeffer wrote called Life Together, where he looked at this idea of community and loving your neighbor. And Bonhoeffer called this ministry of advocating and sharing space with others place sharing. Andrew Root says... This about what Bonhoeffer means when he says place share. When Bonhoeffer says that one person shall become a place share, another person's place share, he means that one person must stand in the place of the other, acting fully on his or her behalf. Place sharing takes place when we place oneself fully in the reality of the, of the other, refusing to turn away from its darkest horror. We stand with the person no matter where they are in life. And we struggle with them, we celebrate them, that's being a place-share, that's the essence of being minister, that's the essence of working with students. Remember those words from earlier, sympathize, tender-hearted, humble, and above all, loving. This is the essence of place-sharing. Andrew Root's ministry book about place-sharing both affirmed and challenged my idea of ministry in the church and in my community. Our ministry in lovely, lovely Xenia, Ohio, gained a reputation because of how we welcomed the church and the unchurched, the put together and the misfits. We had all the kids that were kicked out of all the other churches. We were known on Tuesday nights, if the police needed to find somebody, they didn't search the town, they just came to church and looked for them there. That was the reputation that we had. Even Cedarville University, a very big Christian university, which is about 20 minutes away, started to hear about us. We started to get this influx of college students who wanted to see what our ministry was and help. We had hard kids that challenged most Christian university students. They weren't quite prepared. And I have to confess that me and the staff that worked with me, we had over-under bets whether or not this college student would last more than three weeks. Because our ministry was a furnace. And a lot of people did not last in it. Many didn't make it past week three. Which brings me to the story of a girl who did make it past week three. But she came to our Tuesday night ministry with a very specific reason. She wanted to prove that we were hypocrites. There was no way that churches would welcome misfits and hard students the way our reputation said we did. In fact, she told me she didn't like church or Christians. But if she helped out, it looked good for her at her Christian university at Cedarville. Clearly, there is something going on here. So I told her about this idea of place sharing. I told her how Jesus Christ is our advocate, and he's an advocate for us. He was our place sharer when he came to earth to save us. I simply offered to answer any questions that she might have had, so she emailed us. I learned that she was a hard kid who grew up in the foster care system, and she was eventually brought into the family of a youth pastor. I wish that was the happy part of the story, but that youth pastor was verbally abusive, And the church seemed to turn a blind eye to his actions. And that very much shaped her view of Christians, church, and especially youth pastors. So she kept showing up. She kept emailing us questions and thoughts. We invited her over to our house and we would watch movies. Sometimes we barely said a word. She just needed a distraction from the tough home stuff. She had Easter with us. There were nights when she didn't feel safe so she might sleep in our guest room and our Husky would sleep with her to keep her safe. This was an odd routine for over eight months. Then it was time for her to go back home to Missouri. But before she left, uh, I invited her to this life-changing camp called Velocity. It's the the camp that I took my students to. Um, And I wanted her to to help me as a leader. She was training to be a nurse. I was like, we always need nurses at camp, trust me. (laughs) So I wanted her to help as a leader. I wanted her to meet the other youth pastors. I wanted her to meet the youth pastors who had trained me. So she came, I had to give her bios of everyone so she could know what to expect and to feel safe. We had a good most of the week and then on one of the last days, something unexpected happened. After one, everyone got into their dorms for the night, the power went out. And for someone who suffered abuse, being in a strange place in the dark could be one of the most terrifying experiences ever. And then the transformer on the near side of the building exploded. And she was Frantic. We found her well away from the building, which had been evacuated. Everyone was safe, but she was more afraid and frantic than I'd ever seen someone in my life. She refused to go back into a building with no power, and thankfully my wife, Jessica, had this great idea to go to Walmart at 3 a.m. to find a lantern, a battery-powered lantern, and so we, she did that. I felt like I had failed her. I took her to camp. I had hoped to give her a good experience. I had hoped beyond hope that something would click and she would accept Christ, the real Christ that advocates for her and not the fake Christ that's all about these rules and seems to allow the abuse that she had experienced to continue. Instead, she had a mostly good experience with a hard ending. And then she went back to Missouri for the summer. She asked us to hold on to the lantern for her. We didn't hear for her for weeks. Again, I thought I had failed her. I didn't know what to say, so one day I took a picture of our husky with her lantern and simply said, we have the light on if you ever need anything. So she wrote us later saying that the picture of the Walmart lantern and the sleeping husky gave her hope. She, she told us she didn't understand this Jesus we follow, but she finally believed that we sincerely believed this Jesus, and she was willing to give faith a chance. We're still walking that journey with her. I had the opportunity to officiate her wedding uh, a few years ago, um, which was a peak thing for me. She's not quite there yet, but, she, but place sharing is what opened the door for us to have conversations, share thoughts, and, and Jesus even peeked through. But place sharing starts with sharing space with no expectations on the other person. But we are willing to step into their world with all of its pain, love, hurt, wonder, and disappointment. Bonhoeffer says that when we do that, we are truly loving our neighbor but that can be a scary place because you often feel out of your depth and uncertain of your ability to love your neighbor this way, which brings me to my last point about how to neighbor well. Live beyond yourself. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weakness so that power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, and the troubles that I suffer for Christ for when I am weak, then I am strong. So I got a devotional a few years ago, and it was called what, what If Jesus Was Serious? And it simply looks at Matthew's chapter 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, and the book asks the simple question, what if Jesus was serious about blessing the poor, the hurting, the merciful? What if Jesus was serious about lust, anger, and holding, gr- and holding grudges? What if Jesus was serious about this idea of being salt and light in our world? And what if he was serious when he told his followers, it was our job to push back the darkness and prevent decay, to love our world so much we were actively pushing back the everyday darkness, pain, and hurt that others are feeling. This neighboring lifestyle isn't easy. It's awkward like a Thanksgiving with the homeless, It's filled with inner questions when we just don't know what the right answers are or when the person we've been ministering to doesn't return messages or emails. And the best we can do is think to send a picture of a husky and a lantern. This idea of loving our neighbors is really our attempt to live like Jesus. We often feel inadequate, we often feel unprepared, we all feel confused, but that's where Jesus wants us to be. We are living outside what we think is safe. We are living beyond ourselves. That's when Jesus shows up. Jesus, uh, the epistles say, my grace is all you need. My power works best in your weakness. That gives me hope. That gives me a reason to try again. Jesus' promise of his grace and his power is our encouragement to try again. He promises to be with us as long as we're stepping out and taking his words seriously. So here's how we neighbor well. Aim one, we live out Christ's example. Aim two, we live with our eyes open. Aim three, we live the idea of placing, uh, place sharing. Aim four, we live beyond ourselves. I admit, I'm not good at this neighboring thing. I don't like people in my personal space bubble. I'm an introvert. I don't like people touching my stuff. I don't like people knowing my deepest and darkest secret that I'm a nerd. But God got a hold of me when I read this passage in the book of James, and this is from the message version. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? I'm going to repeat that one. Dear friends, do you think you'll get anywhere in this if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and half starved and say, good morning, friend, be clothed in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup. Where does that get you? And this is the line that kills me. Isn't it obvious that all that God talk without the God acts is outrageous nonsense? I don't know what the moment is that gets you started on this neighboring journey, but I know that a church and that Christ followers that practice these four aims can make a dent in this area. What if this church lives out this neighboring identity? Can you imagine the difference you can make and we can make in this community for the kingdom of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. God, we thank you for this example that you gave us in the incarnation that you came down to earth, God. Thank you for Palm Sunday and the way we celebrate uh, that you are the coming of the king. God, we pray for each and every one of us as we have the courage to live out our our neighboring ways. God, give us the courage to look for you and to look for people to minister to. In your name, amen. amen.